Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. In recent years, we've done several shows on discrimination and hate incidents directed towards immigrants and their families. The topic is personal for me because of my heritage as the daughter of Indian immigrants. So when the very Asian hashtag popped up on social media last week, I immediately felt solidarity with Michelle Lee, a St. Louis news anchor. She shared a voicemail she received after doing a segment about traditional New Year's Day food. Lee, who is of Korean descent, told her audience that she eats dumpling soup on New Year's, saying, quote, that's what a lot of Korean people do. After that segment aired, a viewer left her a message criticizing Lee for, quote, being very Asian and that she should, quote, keep her Korean to herself. When Lee shared that bigoted voicemail, she received an outpouring of positive messages from people like U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth, all proudly identifying with being very Asian. Lee said this about the support she received. My parents are white. My husband is white. I grew up in Missouri. I met my Korean family in 1998. I even helped my sister immigrate to the United States. I have done a lot of hard work to get to know who I am. I am an American. I am Asian. My friends eating noodles for longevity or dumplings for prosperity are also American. Today, where we live, how do these viral moments point to the need for more education about the people who make up this country? Coming up, we focus on the Asian and Pacific Islander community. We'll hear from a student-led group at Amity High School in Woodbridge. And we get an update on new standards for teaching Asian Pacific American history in Connecticut public schools. First joining me on Zoom is Kamla Vorasan, who owns Boonam Bakery in Avon. Kamla, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Uh, So I wanted to learn a little bit about uh, your business and how you ended up here in Connecticut. Yeah, so I ended up getting a job offer to run um, a division of the Lloyd Syndicate Kidnapped Rancher Group here in Connecticut and did that for about six years. And when they shut down the group, I thought, I can't go back to corporate America. Um, I don't want to be a consultant 24-7. What can I do? Um, And my sister and I started the bakery together. She's a classically trained French chef, and I'm a self-taught baker. So we thought, why not have a French bakery um, in Avon, Connecticut, named after my parents. So it's been uh, what, almost two years that you've owned this bakery. Tell us about a how year, a year and eight months. And how has the business evolved and your roots in the community, Kamla? I think it's been um, in the Farmington Valley, Simsbury, Avon uh, has been so welcoming with open arms. And, you know, I think at first people are taken back that it's um, a Asian person owning a French bakery, right? So you don't have your typical Asian person owning a Chinese restaurant or an Asian bakery, but a French bakery. Um, it's been fantastic. And we've gotten, we've survived because of COVID, because of word of mouth. Uh, we built a bakery where we wanted the purpose of the bakery was to be kind of like the cheers or the French bakery of Bunam where 
you know the customers, you know their name, you know their stories. And one of the, the big mission statement that we wanted to do was uh, to give back to the community um, and also kind of raise awareness of different cultures within this particular um, Farmington Valley. When we talk about culture, uh, when we reflect on what Michelle Lee shared uh, as someone of Korean descent, uh, how did you respond when you heard about the very Asian hashtag? When you look at your family roots, uh, you and your family yeah. coming to this country as refugees from Laos. I mean, I would say that I'm hashtag very Asian. Um, you know, for, for us, I think it's more of an understanding of why education and understanding other people's culture is so vitally important. Um, her having soup dumpling for New Year's is just so normal for, for, for us, you know, for the lotion community. When it's New Year's, we have a thing called kabun, which is a coconut uh, curry dish or egg rolls. I mean, that's how we celebrate um, the New Year. Uh, it's one, I think one of the ways we can introduce different cultures to different people, if you don't know, a lot of people outside of your circle is through food. And the one way that we try to do it with Bunan Bakery is to introduce um, different types of food. Like for instance, you know, we have, um, we introduced um, like, I know this is tapioca, which is new to some people. We introduced ube, which is a very traditional Filipino um, potato dish. You know, people come and say, oh, what is this? And we kind of give them the history of the dish and where the country, the region that's from, um, it's, uh, I think being uh, not necessarily like, I'm not first generation. I came here with my parents when I was six. You know, one of the things our parents taught us growing up in Texas that you have to assimilate to be able to do well in this country. But I think back in the eighties and the nineties, assimilating means somewhat forgetting about your heritage a little bit because you try so hard to fit in to the culture. And that means you forget about the food, you forget about the language, you try to submerge yourself into um, the American culture. And then I think, you know, for me personally, I didn't identify myself trying to learn about my Asian heritage until after college, because I did such a good job of wanting to fit in, wanting to assimilate that I forgot about my heritage and where I came from um, and my culture. Um, so that that's why the hashtag very Asian at the age I am now is I'm incredibly proud of being American, being Asian American, coming from Laos. I think that's all very encompassed of, of, of being someone that's very proud to be a U.S. citizen, very proud to be an American, but at the same time holding on to your heritage and where you come from, because that way, you know, the quote is, if you forget your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, and so that's the way of kind of making sure uh, that you are aware of where you come from and your roots, and then you try to tell people, other people about it. it makes you doesn't make you less American to, to embrace where you come from. Mm. You know, what you described is often um, what we hear from immigrants or children of immigrants, uh, this uh, this uh, push to assimilate and to sometimes forget about our roots. But we come to them at different points in our lives. And I'm wondering when you and your family first moved to Texas, how did people respond to you? I will say that we were the only Asian, um, like, for instance, I'll give you elementary school, middle school. We're the only Asian um, family, Laos family. So anytime there was a Chinese New Year, anytime there was anything that had to do with like Asian culture, it was like, oh, Kamala could teach them, right? How to use chopsticks, because they didn't know. You know, there's different sects of the Asian American community. Um, 
And I think for me, my parents really focused on education, making sure that we succeed, but they also focus on a simulation. And I think part of that disservice is that when I came across what we call now microaggression or casual racism, I myself didn't understand what was going on. Like, for instance, I'll tell you where I was in college and we were in a study group and a girl looked at me and said, is it true that the reason why Asians have slanted eyes is that your ancestors were working in the field and they were squinting at the sun for too long? And I remember literally being thinking, was that, was she being racist or was she legitimately trying to ask me a question? Because I didn't understand that conceptual concept of microaggression or casual racism. And I didn't understand that, you know, when you let people have those stereotypes without saying anything to them, you allow them to form an opinion of your culture of who you are and you allow casual racism or casual stereotypes to be confirmed as a truism. Um, and looking back now as an adult, like all these things that happen when people say to me when I was in school, oh, your English is so perfect. You don't have an accent. Um, you know, how did you how did you learn how to speak without the Asian accent? Your your sister has a really heavy accent. Very hard for us to understand her. And it wasn't hard for them to understand her. It, she was articulate. You, can, you know, she the dialect was correct. But things like that, I think growing up, especially in the 80s and the 90s and even the early 2000s, before this new wave of um, the accuracy that we have now with with trying to get Asian people to to, to speak up and to raise their voice and to be seen and, and to say that these stereotypes are not truisms. And that when you hear things that are inaccurate in the stereotype, if you hear, if you hear or you see racism, you have to speak up, especially for the Asian community, because we haven't done that in a very long time. And you're seeing this like surgence of, of us being activists about our own culture and our own identity um, that, that it helps the next generation, the first generation, the next generation, why I think um, speak up about being proud of who you are and and making sure that people understand our culture and that we are a vital part of um, the foundation of building this great country. You're hearing Kamala Vorasan here on Where We Live. Again, she came to the U.S. with her family as refugees from Laos. She's now a small business owner in Avon, and she's sponsoring a scholarship for UConn students enrolled in the university's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. So, Kamala, tell us about, you know, the impetus for this scholarship and, and who it'll benefit. Yeah, so it started with, um, for, you know, when I talk about microaggression or or casual racism that happened to me, I was one of those people that didn't speak up because I just thought that it wouldn't really do any good or it wouldn't really make any change. So what happened when the shooting in Atlanta happened and we saw the news and the first thought, I think of many people because they worked in a massage parlor, they were sex workers. And it just hit home about the idea of the stereotype of what people think, you know, Asian American or AAPI that stereotype negative or positive and I kept saying to myself we have to make a change and we have to speak up when things happen to us that we know is wrong we have to say something um, and so that kind of really pushed us um, in the bakery to kind of raise funding for different organizations and we realized talking to Jason who is the um, education director at UConn that the way to change people's perception of the AAPI community is through education um, and we talked about most people out there, when you think about Asian history or Asian America, what do you know? 
And people know two things, that the Asian people came and built the railroad. You have the uh, internment camps for the Japanese, but you don't know about the Exclusion Acts. You don't know about the San Francisco riot. Um, you don't know about the coolie trade where um, even Abraham Lincoln, when the discussion about ending slavery, part of that didn't include um, the Chinese workers or the Asian workers um, at all. And they kind of used them as indentured servants for place of slavery, right? All these things are the Exclusion Act of like 1913 in California where Asian people or all Asian people couldn't own land um, and you could only lease a farmland for three years. So all these things I kept thinking to myself, if we just had a chance to educate people about how Asian American or API community was part of the growth of the United States, they were part of the foundation of building this great America, how do, how do we do that? And so we thought, why not develop a scholarship where part of the Yukon education uh, department, you do Asian studies, and we thought about the ripple effect, even if they don't end up teaching Asian studies, but if they just know about, you know, the, the 1913 Act or um, the People versus Hall, where back in the day, I think it was, were Asian people, I think it was a, a person, gentleman committed a crime, killed someone, three Chinese witnesses saw it, um, the California Supreme Court said that you couldn't use their testimony because they weren't people, right? Mm -hmm. And if we can just teach people about historically how Asian people throughout history has been a part of the civil rights movements, have been discriminated against. Um, and then if, if you know, one person just knew about that and you're at a dinner party and people talked about microaggression Asian, maybe they can bring up the story of the Exclusion Act or the San Francisco riots. That way people understand that Asian people have always been here and they've always been part of the foundation of the United States. So that's why I pushed for um, kind of the scholarship it's, um, that we're giving to students for the Yukon. You mentioned Jason Chang. He's director of UConn's Asian and Asian American Studies Institute. So this scholarship that you're sponsoring uh, designed to help create a pipeline of teachers who can teach Asian American studies, Kamla. Yes, 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 yes. And how has it been going so far? So this, uh, you've contributed money, but this is also something that your customers from Boonam Bakery have also yeah, been interested so in? Yeah, so we're hoping that more people will contribute to the scholarship. So I... Um, donated 6,000. Boonan Bakery donated 6,000 for the scholarship, and we're hoping that more people would give to the cause, because the more money we can raise, the more teachers um, we can have um, that will do Asian studies and kind of spread the word about um, Asian studies and about the AAPI community. So we're hoping that people will see the link and then we'll donate. Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, the scholarship and, uh, you know, congratulations for uh, starting it and, you know, the fact that it's growing. But can you talk a little bit more about the parameters? Because often when we think about scholarship, you know, it could, it could be based on GPA or merit, but you yeah. wanted the, the, the parameters to be a little more flexible. Talk about why that was. I, I did, because if you look at, um, you know, there's two types. There's the kids that have, I think, that don't struggle financially, that don't have to work while they're going to college. So what I want to do is based on uh, just, just an essay, based on how they contribute to the community. We didn't want to be based on GPA um, because somebody's 2.0 is very different from somebody's 4.0 if they are working 40 hours a week and taking care of their families. Um, and we wanted that money also to be used in any way that could help them. Um, so that's, that's the huge difference. It's not really necessarily based on merit or GPA. It's just based on one essay that says, how do you contribute to your community? And when we say contribute, we don't mean 
You don't necessarily have to go out and volunteer or uh, make a big change. You can just make a change by saying like, you know, your parents, you have two parents that work three jobs and you basically babysit your, your brothers and sisters. And that's part of how you help the community because you're making sure that you have the next generation of kids that are at least have a foundation of, of someone watching over them or having a good role model for them. So that, that was critical for us is that to make sure that it was solely based on an essay and how they contributed to um, the community. That's important to, to mention that you know, people are juggling a lot uh, and finding ways that to support them uh, where they are. When you look back at your time, uh, your time and studying at Texas Christian University, um, your experience uh, getting history and political science degrees, you know, how did that factor into the parameters as well, Kamala? Yeah, I, when I went to school, I think that I, even as an Asian um, American, I did European history instead of Asian studies, just because there wasn't a huge curriculum at my school for Asian studies. Um, and so I hope that with, with Jason's amazing, I hope that with the scholarship that more people will, when they are looking at uh, studying history, they'll do different history instead of just European history, they'll do Asian history. Um, and that encompasses uh, a swath of a different group of people and regions and um, how they contributed to just the world in general. Um, I think TCU was a great school, but I wish they would have had more emphasis on um, Asian studies. It's really important uh, to hear about uh, these local efforts, uh, Kamla. And when we were first uh, talking, you had mentioned, you know, when you first opened your bakery, uh, some of the perceptions people had of, of an Asian woman opening a French bakery. And did you have any negative experiences that you wanted to talk about? And, you know, when you talk about confronting microaggressions, how did you respond? Yeah. I mean, I think that we had, we had microaggression towards us. And I did not say anything because I felt that, you know, as a business that just started as a minority owner, I didn't want to bring up those issues. I didn't want to be seen as that baker that was too woke, too politically correct. Um, I didn't want to alienate people. So I honestly didn't say anything when things happened to me where literally the name is Bunam. You hear the stories of, you know, it's two sisters, Asian. And I kid you not that we have a general manager that is white and we have new people come in. And they would literally say to her, oh, I love your bakery. Are you the owner? Knowing the name is Bunam. Um, I have this one incident where my general manager is telling a story of like, you know, like the sisters and stuff. And this person still said, oh, um, so you're one of the sisters. And she was like, no, I'm not one of the sisters. Both the sisters are Asian. Or, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the very beginning, in the, the, mis the perception of, you know, a French bakery by... Um, someone, a person of color versus like a white person. Um, we get that a lot. We haven't in the very beginning. Now that we don't because we're established and people know us. But yeah, in the very beginning, we've got things like that, right? Like making sure that, you know, people felt that I was just the worker, not necessarily the owner. Or, you know, people posting things that um, were somewhat uh, making, you know, faces... Um, Asian faces directed towards our, our business. You know, those are things that we didn't say anything. And then Atlanta happened. And I think I'm more of an activist to make sure that I will correct people when they have incorrect stereotypes about us. 
I sh we should mention again that your bakery uh, is uh, named after both your parents as well as the scholarship that you've sponsored. When you think about what you've done, this also honors your, your parents, reflecting on their struggles and the life that they helped build for you and your sister. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reason why we are so advocate about giving back, and it's so wildly important, is that, you know, when my parents came here as political asylum, my dad, when the communist regime came to Laos, my dad was in prison for two years. My mom fled to the whole country with five children, uh, the oldest being literally nine years old and the youngest being like three months with nothing. And people helped her. They had nothing and they helped her. You know, they gave her a bag of rice and they themselves didn't have anything to feed us. So my mom has always instilled that famous quote that I love so much. She said, you know, the best time to give is when you have very little because somebody else has absolutely nothing. And that has always been something she's taught all her kids. It's so, so important to give back even when you don't have anything because no one becomes successful without somebody else helping you along the way. Mm. Um, were your parents, uh, were they um, still with us uh, when they uh, when, my, you, when your sister no, opened your bakery? No, unfortunately, my dad passed away about five years ago. My mom passed away literally four months before we were going to open up Bunam Bakery from cancer. Uh, you know, originally we were just going to name the bakery Bunam for my dad. So when mine passed away, we kept saying, oh, she's going to haunt us if we don't name it after her too. <laughs> so then we had to do Bunam, um, and get, you know, in honor of our parents. And we make sure that no matter how successful we are, no matter how little we have, it's so important to give back to the community that's given to us. Um, and that's why we try to do fundraisers. That's why we try to donate to homeless shelters. We try to do uh, canned food drives. And we're so fortunate that we have such a great giving community um, in the farmers in the area. So we're very blessed about that. You're hearing Kamla Vorasan here on Where We Live. Again, she's owner of Bunam Bakery in Avon. We heard about her efforts sponsoring the scholarship, uh, helping uh, educate or help us students uh, as they think about um, becoming educators. Uh, this all fits into this discussion as uh, coming up on the show, we're going to be talking about efforts uh, to boost, to improve uh, the, the education of Asian and Pacific Islander history uh, within our state. Again, uh, Kamla will stay with us. And after the break, we're going to hear from two Connecticut students about their organization working towards changes in school curriculum. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking with Asian Americans in our state and learning about efforts to improve education around Asian and Pacific Islander history. Coming up, we'll get an update on new standards for teaching Asian Pacific American history in Connecticut public schools. First, joining us now are two Amity High School students from Woodbridge. Melinda Liu and Mingyue Za are co-founders of a student-led organization called Amity Asian Activism. Melinda and Ming, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having us. So I'll start with you, Ming. Tell us about this organization that you helped co-found, Amity Asian Activism. What were some of the reasons behind um, starting this group? Yeah, sure. So really, it was started last year um, at the beginning of the school year. And it was basically a response to all the surge of anti-Asian hate that happened due to the pandemic, due to COVID. And we see events that took place last year, such as the Atlanta incident, as well as many elderly um, and women on the streets basically getting knocked down due to like Asian hate crimes. And I felt that there was a need for our community and our school for Asian Americans to be represented and be heard and not marginalized. So I reached out to Melinda over summer and was like, we could build a platform, Asian activism, as a platform for advocacy in our community. So Melinda said yes, and that's basically where we went from there. Now, uh, Ming and Melinda are both juniors. So Melinda, talk about um, some of the student members. And I understand you recently put together a video. Tell us about that video. So the video that we put together was inspired by like some of the YouTube channels that we have seen that show the perspectives of different people within the group of like people who are usually generalized and put together. So the people within our student organization are mainly people of Asian American descent and who want to make change within our community because for even but like before the pandemic, there weren't many groups within our school and even within our community that gave these students an opportunity to voice their opinions. And the video that we created, uh, we called it Perspective, basically took five students from our group and we collaborated with the film club president within our school in order to create a video that showcase that there's different perspectives on different issues within the Asian American community. So we took these five students and laid out a Likert scale on the grounds. And we started with several prompts, like for example, how would you, would your parents react? If there was something controversial within the school, would your parents react or like how, from a scale of one to 10, how much would they react? And then you basically go to a certain place in the room and then you kind of like have a discussion based on why you chose your certain place. 
I wanted to play an excerpt uh, from this video, Melinda, that you described. Uh, two students, Marin and Sana, they're talking about you know the importance of being seen and what it means when they don't see their cultures reflected in school curriculum. Here's that clip. I really disagree with the fact that my culture is represented in like our school curriculum because. Um, I'm one of the three Japanese people in my school, and I have seen none of my culture represented. As an Indian and a Muslim, I don't see my like my identity like shown a lot. I don't know what you guys know about my culture, but I feel like um, other people will think of just like negative things about Indian culture and. Um, terrorists like they think like with with my Muslim identity they probably just think like terrorism and like prejudice against them. I would like to see people talk about um, our holidays like um, Eid al-Hada and Eid al-Fitr which aren't really like um, known and with my Indian culture I just like people to respect our traditions and um, acknowledge that cultures can be different. So, Melinda, build on what we uh, just heard, because when we think about uh, Asians and Asian Americans, you know, uh, so much diversity and so important to not clump people together uh, based on one identity, uh, but to reflect on the differences, different cultures where people are coming from, the different traditions. Um, and that's not something that um, maybe a lot of students are being exposed to. Yeah, so we actually started with reaching out to Dr. Chong about this because we felt that within our own school, as some of the other speakers have said before, we haven't really seen any explicit like education on some of like the Asian American customs or like the Asian holidays. So we wanted to create a way to show that it's important to learn about these different cultures and that Learning about these different cultures can open your eyes up to different perspectives and gain knowledge about the lives behind these people. And Ming, what did you share in the video? Uh, sorry, can you repeat that? Yes, uh, what did you share in the video, Ming? Yeah, so one thing that I said in the video was I felt that um, were for one of the prompts where we asked, would you speak out if there was a uh, deficiency in the school's educational curriculum on your representation and representing your background. Um, so I basically said that for myself personally, I feel like there was a need for me to speak out. And basically that was what we did with Asian American activism. And to go off of that, I think there was a particular moment where I realized that I could speak out about this issue and be heard. And that was last year. Um, at the end of the year in my English class, we had went around the room talking about how our English literature books that year had impacted us. And one book that we had read that year was The Crucible. And I basically started talking in class about like The Crucible and the Salem Witch Trials and how I felt that had a profound reflection of the circumstances that Asian Americans were facing that year. And I found that uh, many of the students in my English class who particularly were Asian were like brought to tears by my statements because they had felt the same way. And I felt that at that moment, 
that there was a need to speak out for and advocate for Asian Zen community. And that was something that I brought into that video. What would you, how would you describe the climate in your school, Ming? Uh, you know, are students uh, fully supported, especially when we look at your particular group and, you know, some of the, the microaggressions that uh, members may have experienced as students? Right. So in our community, I tend to uh, surround myself with a lot of, like, people who are allies or who are Asian Americans. Um, and members of our club who do support us. But so like there is a large sector of our school who is really welcoming. But I think in the in this year, there was one incident that stuck out to me as um, notable that our school still did need an organization to promote Asian American rights. And that was when at the beginning of the school year, a student had found another student's social media profile and that student, um, that student's social media profile had a picture of them basically pulling the Asian sand eye uh, gesture. And that kind of showed that there were some students in our school who were still ignorant about the culture and insensitive about some of the microaggressions and gestures that they were doing and how that could impact other students in our community. Melinda, did you want to respond to that question as well? So for my perspective on that, I feel like having this platform that Ming came up with and that I contributed to, it gave me a way to show my voice within the community because usually I feel like this is normally for my parents and also for Asian people, I guess, in general, because my parents were brought up in that like they became who they were and they got to the place where they were because they worked hard and they stayed quiet. They followed the rules in order to get to the place that they are. But I feel like right now with so many like issues we have with discrimination within the United States and these issues coming to the surface, it's important to, for me and for other people who want to speak out to voice their opinions and know that there is someone who will listen to them and will take them seriously. And that's important. We've mentioned microaggressions a few times. I know Kamala had uh, used the term, uh, you know, casual racism. But to uh, your point, uh, Ming, earlier, um, you know, we've done shows on this. You know, since the pandemic, uh, more than 10,000 hate incidents have been reported to the organization Stop Asian American and Pacific Islander Hate. And so when we think about uh, certain things that are said, uh, maybe in jest or um, showing uh, ignorance, you know, that that can escalate uh, to violence and to making people feel uncomfortable. And that's why it's important to speak up. What do you think, Ming? I think that is, uh, I would agree with you on that. And during the pandemic, there were a lot of news reportings about how like elderly women or particularly like just women, Asian Americans in general were targeted as um, the, basically like the butt end of hate crimes. And in every one of those incidents, I felt that those could have been like my relatives or my friends or even my family. And I felt that um, basically enough was enough. And in my community, I wanted to take a stand and make sure that that didn't happen in our community in the future. 
You're hearing Ming Za here on Where We Live and Melinda Liu Jr. is at Amity High School. They're co-founders of the Amity Asian Activism Group. Uh, we were talking earlier about this video that you all worked on. And, you know, coming up, we're going to hear more about statewide, you know, standards to teach Asian American and Pacific Islander education in Connecticut public schools. But what's next for your organization? How are you involved in maybe changes to your school curriculum? I'll start with you, Melinda. So the changes that we really want to be involved in is we were speaking with Dr. Chang earlier and we were collaborating with our social, social studies department head and they're going to do a diversity and inclusion audit this year for their curriculum, especially like their social studies and history curriculum. So we're working with him and with our social studies department head to kind of come up with a way to showcase like Asian American history within our history curriculum. So students are able to understand that these are the different parts of what it means to be American. And Ming, did you want to talk about these uh, next steps? Yeah, sure. So one step that we're taking is Melinda and I had both uh, started being involved in Connecticut's state board, the Student Equity Advisory Board. And on that board, we're collaborating with other members to develop this project called Word in CT, where we're going to um, invite students to share their perspectives and stories um, on like racial disparities or gender disparities in Connecticut. So then that can be then given to the state and turned into a resource for curriculums of teachers who are social studies teachers who care about um, voicing the voices of like minority groups in Connecticut. This is such important work, and you both should be very proud of yourselves, the work that you're doing uh, to help uh, these efforts. Uh, Kamla is still with us. I wanted you, uh, Kamla, to respond to what you, we've been hearing from Melinda and Ming. I am so inspired by Melinda and Ming because um, it's a, the next generation of Asian Americans speaking up, fighting for visibility for the Asian American community, raising awareness of the racial discrimination or lack of education about who we are as people and how we contribute to um, the United States. I am just blown away because um, they're doing things that I never thought at my age that I would do. And I think Melinda really hit it on the head when she said, we are a generation where our parents came to this country, worked really hard, became successful because they always told us, you know, you, you can't speak up. You have to put your head down no matter how much discrimination you see, no matter how much um, unfairness or prejudice that you see, the way to be successful is to put your head down and just keep on moving. And I'm just absolutely inspired by these two young ladies that are speaking up, having their voices heard, speaking up not only for um, their generation, but for us you know, people of the older Asian American generation that didn't speak up when we saw injustice or discrimination. So I am so inspired by what they're doing. Same. Uh, Ming, I understand that uh, your parents are first generation immigrants from China. What's their response to, to uh, what you've been doing with this organization? My parents have been really supportive throughout the journey. And honestly, I think that 
they had also wanted me to do something in the school to promote Asian rights, especially since um, in terms of like immigration and uh, fluency in the culture of the US, they were probably not, they didn't feel that they were able to be advocators because they were first generation immigrants and not very fluent in English. And I also wanted to like carry on their legacy and their hopes to promote Asian advocacy and activism in the community and in our school. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show during the school day. We really appreciate it. Ming Za and Melinda Liu, both juniors at Amity High School in Woodbridge, co-founders of the Amity Asian Activism Group. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. And also Kamla Vorasan has been with us, owner of Boonam Bakery in Avon. Kamla, I got to head to your bakery. Hope to see you soon. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We appreciate uh, your time and perspective on our show today. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, there's been a flurry of bills and laws to update Connecticut school curriculum. We get the latest about the standards to teach Asian and Pacific Islander history in our state. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, former Housing Commissioner Yvonne Klein is now the newly appointed CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. On the next Where We Live, Klein joins us to talk about homelessness, also the lack of affordable housing in our state. What's your town working on to provide more multifamily homes? You can join us that conversation tomorrow. Now, during last year's legislative session, a Senate bill was introduced to include Asian Pacific American studies in the public school curriculum. That bill followed Connecticut's passage of laws to mandate black and Latino studies curriculum in public schools, the first state to do so in the nation. For more on what happened with the proposal for the Asian Studies curriculum, joining us now on the phone is Catherine Chen. She's Connecticut Public's education reporter. Catherine, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So I mentioned this proposal for an Asian American Studies uh, uh, standards or curriculum. What happened with that proposal? So basically, like you said, um, during the last legislative session, an implementer bill had been called for changes and to create a model curriculum for the K through eight um, students by 2023. Now, within that bill, it also includes not only Asian American Pacific Islander studies, it also has Native American studies, LGBTQIA studies, and veteran history. So all those topics are they share an intersection and are all important for students to be aware of. And the language is a, is a little broader and briefer than most bills that you will see um, created by advocates, but it's sort of part of the state's process of figuring out how these subjects might intersect 
and be the most beneficial for students and to find a balance of how to have all of those topics um, be taught in one curriculum. You mentioned the implementer bill, so this is very technical, like in the legislative session, when certain uh, bills haven't been voted on, uh, kind of in the last minute, they get smushed together. Um, it's also seen as a vehicle to pass parts of a bill that may have failed during the year or might never have been proposed. And so talk through with us when we think about uh, the Black and Latino studies curriculum that's been mandated. So when you hear about all these other um, topics that are kind of getting smushed together, what does that mean when we uh, try to distill uh, what will be taught or how things will change in curriculum uh, when we look at Asian and Pacific Islander history, Catherine? Right. It, it, can, it can get quite confusing, but I think the basic breakdown is the Black and Latino Studies elective, the mandate has to roll out in public high schools with a very specific curriculum. Whereas um, with the implementer bill, let's say the Indigenous Studies portion has to roll out in, in grades 6 to 12 for the 2023-24 school year, while the AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander curriculum, has a January 2023 deadline. And so on the, on the very basic level, the implementer bill has a bit more flexibility in terms of what they teach based on the standards that they have to create, which we can touch on in a little bit. But that's basically the difference between a mandate and an implementer bill. So when we think about curriculum that might be coming online down the road, before we get there, uh, the standards need to be ironed out, Catherine? Right. So the basic idea behind that is part of this process, the state's kind of looking at this as a way to reframe the social studies framework. And what that means is before anyone gets to the curriculum portion, they have to create what's called a standards document that will be used by teachers and curriculum writers. And this standard would impact all grades from kindergarten through 12th. And the, the basic idea behind this is you can't create a curriculum without having a set of standards to work off from. And like I said earlier, this entire process is kind of a way to reinvent how social studies will be taught in the state in the future, because since under this bill, it has API, Indigenous Studies, Veterans History, and LGBTQIA History. These are all social studies-oriented topics, and the state hopes to find a way to, to balance them and include them on this curriculum so students can, can learn from it in the future. We heard earlier from these students at, at Amity High School, and so in some way they're doing some of, of the work that needs to be done before we think about what model curriculum looks like. Uh, can you talk, uh, respond to what we heard from the students and how they're involved uh, on the local level in their district? Sure, and I very much like um, your previous guest earlier, I feel super inspired. I cannot even picture myself as a high school student doing what they're doing. I definitely was not doing all of that. And I think what, what, they're, what they're involved in is great. And I think you know, despite, despite a lot of the social status, uh, justice movements that's been happening, I think the silver lining that came out from it is for the youth to be more involved and what they said really resonated with me to a certain extent. I am also um, Asian American, and 
to see that they're giving a voice for students. Um, it's very, very inspiring. And I think it's also a great way to show their peers and show adults as well um, that their voices are important and they are so involved with what is happening in their surrounding areas. And, and I think that's kind of the point where you have to start local. You have to start with your friends. You have to start with your family. And I'm really excited to see where they take all of that. Mm. Getting back to when we're talking about changes to curriculum, you know, professional development is a big part of this. Um, we think about the resources being strained in this pandemic. And so, you know, how the Department of Education is thinking about rolling this out as well, uh, Catherine. So you're right. Professional development is a huge piece of this. And there are a lot of teachers and different local stakeholders who are all involved with creating the standards. So right now, we know the process has started. But like you mentioned, with everything that's been going on related to the pandemic, with the disruptions, we don't know how realistic it would be to have a set of standards be approved by the state of the State Board of Education, they have a tentative deadline for the end of the school year, which is about the June timeframe. But I think um, we're sort of in a wait and see situation right now, but there is movement happening and we'll, we'll probably get some updates in the next, next couple of months, I would think. Uh, well, this is the first time you've been on our show, Catherine. You're uh, the new education reporter for, for Connecticut Public. With just a short time that we have left, uh, can you preview some of the stories that you're working on soon? Sure. Um, I actually am working on a piece that's related to what we've been talking about uh, with educator diversity. Um, hope to sort of explore what the state is doing to not only recruit, but to retain uh, minority teachers and male teachers as well. Um, not seeing a lot of numbers for that. So curious to, to learn more about what the process is like and also encouraging students, high school students who are interested in teaching and they hope to create a, a better, smoother pipeline process for them, for them to do that. So it all kind of intersects just like the curriculum. Well, thank you, Catherine Shen, for joining us here on Where We Live. Again, she's the education reporter for Connecticut Public. You can hear, see and hear her stories, of course, uh, at our website, ctpublic.org, and check out the, the many our stories archived by our news team. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Kat Pastor is our technical director. We'll be back tomorrow.